This podcast was funded by and developed in collaboration with AstraZeneca. Please be advised that all opinions are that of the faculty and do not necessarily reflect those of AstraZeneca. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Raman, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to another Office of Education podcast. Today's specific episode is titled Prostate Cancer Treatment Intensification, and it's my pleasure to host as our show's guest, Dr. Mike Cookson. Dr. Cookson is professor and chair of the Department of Urology at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine and chief surgical officer at the OU Health Stevenson Cancer Center. Uh, Mike, uh, first of all, thank you so much. I know the schedule is always busy, and we appreciate you taking a little bit of time to join us uh, for this podcast today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and hope we can uh, do some good work here today. Super. So just really for our listeners, um, before we we sort of go through some of the details, why, why don't you just give us maybe uh, like a high level overview of what we're going to be talking about, maybe a quick review of the topic, and then and then we'll maybe go through some of the details and some of the, the trials that, that sort of inform us on this. Sure. So we're here today to talk about the treatment of advanced prostate cancer. And as most of you know, this is a, an area that's in constant improvement and evolution. Uh, we're now forward moving in combination therapies. Um, we used to think about treatments in terms of just single agents that were used in uh, sequential um, use. When one failed, we'd add another. Um, in addition to that, now we're successfully, you know, moving forward with combination therapies, not just intensifying the treatment, but doing it early in their disease state, like in when we talk about metastatic disease at discovery of their metastases, rather than waiting for them to progress and fail. So we've had some significant improvements based on some good clinical trials that have been performed. And these have been translated into um, major improvements in the outcome, adding you know, more than a year of life to men by just simply adding a treatment or combining a treatment early on. So really that's gonna be the theme of, of this particular podcast is really to continue to raise awareness of these combination treatments and, and hopes that we can improve the outcome of men with more advanced prostate cancer. Now, you know, in the setting of this um, podcast, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about metastatic prostate cancer. And, you know, obviously we have a full spectrum of listeners that start with us. And, and so maybe even before we go into some of the nuances of treatment intensification, maybe just briefly for our listeners, with regards to metastatic prostate cancer, can you just sort of help define for the group you know, hormone sensitive versus castrate resistant. What does that mean exactly to you? And then obviously we will we'll sort of go through some of the, the deeper dive into the, the whole concept of intensification in different settings. Sure. Well, even that is evolving with the uh, use of newer, better tools to detect prostate cancer. But in general, we believe, you know, locally advanced tumors are those that have either breached the capsule of the prostate or spread into the region of the prostate through nodal channels. But truly metastatic is uh, usually defined as nodes that are in the retroperitoneum or above, um, soft tissue involvement, visceral involvement, and bone involvement. So metastatic spread to those sites. And you know, for patients who present um, newly diagnosed with metastatic disease, then they're known as also de novo, and that'll come up a little bit later. 
Um, the more common presentation for many men in America is that they have undergone local treatment, surgery, radiation, they recur, they get a treatment or not, they ultimately progress and then they develop uh, metastatic disease. But you know, you, you're probably aware that the American Cancer Society put out some uh, new facts and figures this year, and we're seeing sort of this uptick in the discovery, not just of prostate cancer in general, but of more advanced prostate cancer. And that really has to do with some of the lack of screening that's gone on in the United States, particularly, and even the pandemic confounded it to some degree. So when you don't screen and years go by, um, ultimately patients get discovered, but unfortunately too late. So we're really talking about metastatic disease spread that has gone beyond um, what we think of as curable, but very treatable cancer control. And again, we'll, we'll kind of nuance into the amount of spread of cancer can matter. So the volume of cancer um, can help determine response to therapy, for example, high versus low volume. Um, some people think of things like risk, high risk, meaning high grade tumors, or um, again, volume of cancer and combinations thereof. Many of these definitions were really born out of ways to evaluate patients through clinical trials, but because they had an impact on some of the outcomes, they've translated into kind of real world clinical practice. But we'll come back to that in a little bit. But again, conventional imaging was the way that most of these trials evolved their patients. So a bone scan, CT scan, or MRI. Now we're seeing PET scans. And of course, they now have approval for newly diagnosed high-risk men where we're finding earlier metastases, micrometastases. And so we're having to come to terms with how that might work in terms of our treatments as well. Great, great. Uh, very, very helpful just to sort of set that stage. So, you know, this sort of leads us into what um, you kicked off our show, which is really talking about this concept of uh, treatment intensification in this advanced prostate cancer space. So maybe talk to us a little bit about what does that mean exactly? Um, what are the different types of therapy? What does doublet mean? What does triplet mean? And, and what are sort of the, the key elements here? Great, great question. Um, one of the things that we, we think about when we talk about treating these men, you know, for years and let's say pre, you know, 2014, really we had androgen deprivation therapy. We would look at different LHRHs and different delivery systems, sub-Qs versus IMs and, and things like that, combinations where we would add a first-generation anti-androgen, such as bicalutamide. But um, really, our, our primary control of the cancer was androgen deprivation therapy in the conventional sense. Then some studies came forward, and most of us are well aware of names like Charted and Stampede, that added chemotherapy, docetaxel chemotherapy, in combination with androgen deprivation therapy. And what they found was that added, you know, more than a year of cancer control and a year of overall survival to these men if it was placed in that position. Historically, the, the first approval for chemotherapy really was in that castrate resistant. And we I didn't really define that for you earlier. And I think, you know, we might as well just introduce that concept when the PSA is rising or when the disease is progressing despite a, a castrate level of testosterone that enters into that 
castration resistant pattern. And that's where many of the early um, novel hormonal therapies, chemotherapies were first trialed because it was felt that was one of the greatest needs. But once they discovered some benefit in that late stage castration resistant, they were moved up into earlier disease state, such as the newly diagnosed metastatic patients. And that's where, for example, charted and Stampede showed an advantage to adding that chemotherapy earlier on. So that kind of started the possibility of adding, say, two therapies or dual therapy. But then other agents, again, working their way back from initial response in castration resistance to more untreated men with metastatic disease, those were medications such as abiraterone acetate used in combination with prednisone, um, medications like enzalutamide and apalutamide. So those drugs were then added to kind of the traditional LHRH therapies, and they showed, again, significant improvement in overall survival. So the concept of doing more than just our traditional androgen uh, monotherapy approach, if you will, um, is clear. But it's important to note that, and I know you're aware of some of these um, studies, when they go to look at um, pharmaceutical uh, large registry database type information, we find that less than 50% of men with metastatic disease are treated with combination therapy when they present in these scenarios. So we're, there's been, even though the knowledge is there, there's a gap in that translating into practice. And so really the purpose and why we're here today, I think is to continue to raise the possibility that there is more out there for these men than just simply giving them a shot. And that's what I hope to talk about. But when we talk about two therapies, sometimes three therapies, um, they may be appropriate for some of these newly diagnosed patients. And so far, the report card suggests that we're really not offering that very often to men in this scenario. So that's really why we're here is to, to educate and to uh, make available those options for our patients. So I think you summarized so well sort of the concept of doublet therapy and you, you sort of outlined, you know, two, two types of broad scenarios that you either are combining, you know, ADT with chemotherapy or ADT with one of the novel hormonal therapy agents. And, and that almost maybe sets the stage for uh, the concept of triplet therapy. So maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, what is triplet therapy building off of this doublet concept and, and whom would be sort of the most appropriate candidates? Is there some sort of selection criteria to know who we should really uh, offer this triplet therapy to? Sure. Well, if, if we accomplish nothing else today, I want to make sure that we do at least get the idea rolling that more than just conventional ADT would be moving the needle forward. Now, in the patients where they do present with metastatic disease, there have been two trials over the last couple of years. Some of them have even had follow-up recently at, say, the GU-ASCO, and some will be presented at the AUA, where two studies, one called PEACE-1 and the other one called Aronson's, looked at three therapies initiated at the time of initial treatment. And so the PEACE-1 trial took patients with metastatic disease. By the way, these were 100% 
newly diagnosed metastatic de novo. So that's special about them. That may not be everybody in your practice, but they treated those patients with the abiraterone acetate, which of course um, is an adrenal synthesis inhibitor, a CYP17 inhibitor. So it's used in conjunction with prednisone. And then they added to that the standard of care, which was the docetaxel and traditional ADT. So we already talked about chemo and ADT. We knew that was an improvement. And then they added abiraterone and they compared that to the placebo plus docetaxel and ADT. Uh, the other study was the Aronson study. And again, a randomized study. This time, the oral agent that was introduced to standard of care, and standard of care was the chemotherapy docetaxel plus ADT. Um, they used darolutamide. So darolutamide compared to placebo plus standard of care. To really to answer your, your very good question is, we don't know who is the perfect profile, who's the perfect pedigree for consideration for three drugs, because really we need more information. Is that going to come forward with just subsetting out the patients as the trials evolve? That's one option. Is there some sort of biomarker? Is there anything in their circulating tumor cells? Is there anything in their original tumor that could precisely tell us who's better responsive to the chemo as compared to just going down the androgen pathway? And we, we really don't have that data yet. So uh, I think you, you've laid out really abundant amounts of data, whether we talk about doublet therapy or triplet therapy, you've outlined really nicely studies with clear data um, and compelling data. So you alluded to this a little bit earlier that despite the evidence of seemingly very sound data on this concept of intensification, whether it's doublet or triplet, but let's just look, let's look at doublet because that's really much more commonly used uh, with a longer track record, there's a relative underutilization when one looks at population uh, data. And, and why? Maybe your thoughts on it. Maybe the gap is it a knowledge gap. Is it a is it a cost gap? Is it a uh, side effect gap or, or or some combination? Love your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think uh, first of all, I want to thank the AUA for letting us be able to talk about this. Many busy practitioners, you know, it's hard to get the most updated information. And I find that the further out you get, rural communities even a little bit harder. So I think anything we can do to deliver the information is a step in the right direction. So there is a knowledge gap in some areas. Um, there are also other barriers, including cost. I mean, there's financial issues, toxicity associated with these. Most of the medications that are oral are delivered through, you know, specialty pharmacies. Um, those require some financial assistance or navigation if you have it. So if you work at a larger center, you might have that person to help work with them to get a discount or to even sometimes get the medications um, uh, at no charge. But that really takes a lot of work to work that out. So there's financial barriers, there's access barriers, there's knowledge gap everything you can imagine. And so, and then there's patient factors too. Some patients really, even if they could receive chemo or were the right patients, may be reluctant to do that. They think of it more like, you know, somebody that gets that treatment um, on the last month of their life. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, there's a lot of multidisciplinary care that goes into this. Um, but if we don't introduce the concept, most urologists don't give chemotherapy and that bears out in those registry 
data is too, when you look at the treatments, you know, we're doing not a great job in general, but neurologists are much more likely to prescribe an oral agent, even if it's a novel hormonal therapy um, as compared to chemo. But if they don't make a referral to the oncologist to consider chemo, then it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So then when does it happen? It'll only happen when they flip to that resistant state. While there is still benefit in that area, it's it's measured more in months, not in years. So that that's really what we're seeing. I think about it, when I think about what urologists know best about home run therapies, you think about testes tumor. You think about the patient who presents with widely metastatic disease. They get a combination of chemotherapies, maybe surgery, sometimes radiation, and then they get a great response and even a cure. So we're not quite evolved to that level with advanced prostate cancer, but certainly our goal is to, to turn this into more of a chronic disease condition. And by early intensification and combination therapy, rather than just doing it sequentially when one fails, we're seeing a much more robust response. So when you, maybe, maybe I'll ask you a little bit, um, do you think, you know, if we just talk about strategies for, for improvement, mitigation, it seems like education would be one, um, as you're doing here, sort of uh, highlighting that um, there is data, there is data that emphasizes that we should be integrating these treatment paradigms earlier, as opposed to, as you alluded to, sort of the, the end stage where the treatment benefit from intensification may be um, much more minimized just because we're much later in the disease process. So education is a key one, which is, as you alluded to, why, why we're doing this podcast. And any other thoughts on any other, I mean, are there... Any thoughts that you have? It's of course the pie in the sky idea on on the treatment uh, cost aspect of this and the financial toxicity aspect of it, or is your thought that this is one of those things that over time, as drugs permeate into the market, uh, costs may inevitably may may go down due to just a, a competition in the workspace? Yeah. So I mean, I think we all know that as things you know run through their patent and their life cycle, they'll become more affordable. And we see that already with, for example, abiraterone, which was out a little earlier than the, some of the other drugs. Um, but, but it's an expensive proposition. You have to look at the cost in terms of dollars, but you also have to look at the cost in terms of quality of life and years of life and those sort of things. So they, they can all be measured. Many of these oral medications, you know, we don't know is two years enough. Do you do it the rest of your life? Some of them have been used in trials for shorter periods. We know the chemotherapy in general is six treatments distributed over about a three-week period. That can be expensive, but it's it's sort of a six and done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of of financial issues related to the the optimal therapies, but in my mind, really, I try to practice what is best for the patient, and then we try to work out to the best of our abilities, how we will afford to to deliver that care. And again, if you are in a small area, you may not have access to that. So you might need to make a referral to a center, a cancer center that can help the patient get through the specialty pharmacy. You continue to manage them. You're still their mainstay hormonal therapy. You're going to be refilling the medications and helping them with it, or you'll partner with somebody that does more advanced prostate cancer disease, maybe an oncologist if there's chemo involved or other therapies. So I, I think it takes multiple providers and I think it takes 
um, a little bit of a village really to deliver the optimal care. But the days of just coming into my office and getting a shot and coming back in three months or six months and nothing done in between is, is it really should be um, a, a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. So let's maybe just talk a little bit for maybe the next five minutes or so on um, one specific cohort. If we look at just the metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer, so metastatic CRPC, and we just look at sort of first line therapies in this cohort, talk to us a little bit about treatment intensification in, in this sort of more unique scenario. Yeah. So we're seeing where combination therapies, even in the castration resistant space, are starting to um, be reported as beneficial. So um, an example would be, and, and it, you'll, I know you'll probably do a whole separate podcast on PARP inhibitors, but genetic testing is advised for patients with, you know, family history and syndromes of you know, breast cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, lung. So family history of prostate cancer, three or more relatives, newly diagnosed metastatic disease, patients who present with castration resistance. So germline testing is, again, a genetic counseling coupled with that is a mainstay of management. And one of the nice things about it is it can open up opportunities for these PARP inhibitors where they have shown the most benefit for patients with these DNA repair gene alterations. Now, they were initially trialed in men who had failed multiple therapies. So chemotherapy failure, uh, novel hormonal th therapy failure, then they try the PARP inhibitor. So there was benefit on the very far end. So now, of course, they're moving it up. So they've recently done a couple of trials looking at adding PARP inhibitors to the novel hormonal therapy, mainly abiraterone for the, for the first trials that have been released. There seems to be synergy with you know, the antigen receptor and the DNA repair mechanisms. And so if you have inhibition of the PARP combined with um, inhibition of their androgen, uh, there, there seems to be a synergistic thing going on. And so looking at abiraterone combined with the PARP inhibitor, there has been um, significant benefit and much more than we ever saw, say, with abiraterone alone, which is a first-line treatment in that castration-resistant state. So using combination therapies, which could be novel hormonal therapies combined with some of these PARP inhibitors, we're starting to see some responses. And of course, the best responses are in those patients that have those germline mutations. I think, you know, other things are coming forward, a whole era of theranostics, you know, lutetium was sort of first out for looking at patients with positive uptake on their PET scans and then adding a treatment to those. And that's really been slow uptake in the United States due to many things, distribution, eligibility, toxicity, you name it. But I think the future is going to be adding combinations of treatments and, and different mechanisms of action earlier in the disease process. And so the, the PARP inhibitor combined with the novel hormonal therapy is an example of a coming preview of coming attractions, if you will. So maybe I'll close this out here and, and you know, ask you, you know, from, at a high level, and you, I think you've sort of touched on this at multiple points, but maybe in a summative manner, you know, what, we, what can we do as urologists to improve the care of men with advanced prostate cancer? And I would say, you know, one of the, you just mentioned it, I think one of the key takeaways is, 
is this concept of recognizing the need for germline testing. Um, I think, as you alluded to so clearly, that this really could help inform on, you know, more personalized treatments based upon uh, genetic uh, or germline mutational profile. And you highlighted very nicely sort of some of the data with the PARP inhibitors. But even beyond the germline testing, what should be the big take-home message that we need to do as urologists or we need to do better as urologists in this space? Sure. Well, I, I think you have to have physician champions if you're in a small group, large group. It, this may not be for everybody. You know, somebody might rather spend their day chasing other things or, you know, surgical or treatment of kidney stone. But you need physician champion or champions who are going to be willing to take this on. Whenever we see patients with advanced prostate disease or certainly metastatic disease, you know, we didn't even have time to get into sort of the ABCs of, of what all we're doing, but it includes, you know, the androgen deprivation, it includes the combination therapies, it includes their bone health, it includes cardiovascular assessments, it includes exercise and a whole bunch of other things. So I think if you, if you really, do it well and enjoy it. You'll see the benefit in your patients and you'll, and, and that gives a great reward. But if I could say anything, it would be consider combination therapies earlier in the disease state. So earlier treatment intensification, newly diagnosed metastatic patients, um, patients that progress, they're going to benefit from those combinations. Don't wait. It's not a single lane highway. It's a combination upfront. And so that would be the most advancement that we could hope for in the early period. Hopefully five years from now, we come back and we say 75% of men with newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer receive combination therapies. And then we move on to some other treatments that will further move the needle. No, that's really outstanding, Mike. Uh, again, uh, thank you so much. I, I, you know, I think you really summarized a topic that I think many urologists may find daunting, but I think hopefully through a lot of this programming, uh, small incremental steps to make it a little easier for this to become part of treatment practice and really appreciate the way that you really distill it down to some of the key take-home points. So again, thank you very much, Mike, for the time today in the midst of a very busy day, I'm sure. Thank you for having me and appreciate the AUA and all that you're doing to um, improve the lives of men with prostate cancer. Thank you very much. And for our audience, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. Uh, Mike, have a great day. I look forward to seeing you next month at the AUA. Take care.